We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day to gather together to learn more about you and your word. We pray as we look at this topic of Christian liberty that you would help us to realize afresh the liberty that we have in Christ, liberty from the Old Testament, liberty from those who would put us into bondage and legalism, and Lord, liberty to do binding and loosing according to your scriptures. And we pray that these concepts would sink deep within us so that we may make a difference not only in our lives, but also for those that we know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've thought, thought this topic has been kind of timely due to various events that have gone on. And I know we always have new people in our church. And so I wanted to talk about Christian liberty and understanding what true binding and loosing is. And so today we're going to be covering three things. And I really would love to get through this entire PowerPoint. That may be a pipe dream. But, uh, well, we're going to give it a whirl. It's 12 slides, really, ultimately, to get through. But we're going to cover three things. Number one, we're going to see that we've been liberated as believers in Christ from the Old Covenant. It's really shocking how many Christians don't realize that they're no longer bound to the Mosaic Covenant, but they are entirely bound to the New Covenant. So that's one thing that we have to realize is that we're no longer Old Covenant people, the people of God, but we're the New Covenant people of God. Number two, we're going to see not only are we no longer bound to the old covenant, but if we're not bound to a covenant that God once gave, we're certainly not bound to man-made laws in order to make us more religious, more pious, etc. If some joker down the street says you can't watch football on Sunday, just one example, you have to ask where is that under the new covenant? Okay, so if we're not bound to the Mosaic covenant, the greatest covenant, the greatest law ever given up until the time of Moses, certainly we're not going to be bound to any man-made law that didn't come from God. But number three, we're going to define what binding and loosing is. No, binding and loosing is not binding Satan and the demons or loosing them, but rather it's determining what we are morally obligated to do and what we are free to do under the new covenant. That's what we're going to be learning today. So with number one, I want to talk about new covenant liberty. And what's interesting is that that very term liberty is used in many texts that Paul talks about in the New Testament regarding the new covenant. The term for liberty, it's eleutheria, and what that means is freedom, liberty. And we're going to find out that it's liberty not just from our sin, but also from the Mosaic covenant that incited sin. Notice what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3.17. He said, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And again, that term liberty there is that term eleutheria. That's the term that we have freedom. But the big question is, do we have freedom from what? Liberty? Here, let me give you a couple of choices. We can say, well, I have liberty from sin. In other words, I'm liberated in the sense that I will no longer sin against God. Now remember, ultimately, that complete liberty from sin occurs after glorification where we will never sin again. But there is a liberty in the sense that you and I are no longer slaves to sin. Now the second option, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive, is that we are no longer bound to the Mosaic Covenant. Now the reason I say that both of those answers aren't mutually exclusive is because when you look at the data of the New Testament, you're going to see that today, is that the Mosaic Covenant didn't restrain our sin, it incited it. Now that's shocking to Christians until you actually see the Apostle Paul say it. Far from limiting our sin, 
the Mosaic law incited our sin, not because the Mosaic law was deficient, but because of our sin nature. And so I would say it's both and, that you and I are liberated from our sin, but we're also liberated, and this is Paul's point here, from the Mosaic covenant that incited our sin. Now, let me show you where we're going to find this. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3. We'll start in verse 6. We won't read all of it, and I'll go to verse 9. So let's start in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. So I'm just going to give you a little context to this 2 Corinthians 3, 17 passage. And what you're going to see is that Paul's point is how much superior the new covenant is. Why? Because the new covenant, we are given the Spirit, and the Spirit overcomes our sin nature. It enables us to finally obey and, most importantly, believe. Believe and obey. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, notice how it begins with who. In context, the who there in verse 6 is God. So God also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Notice the distinction between the letter and the Spirit. The letter is a clear reference to the old covenant. What did that do? Did that bring life? No, it killed. It brought death. And it did it by design. It kills those who are under it. Why? Because they can't live under it. They can't abide by it. Why? Because of the weakness of the flesh. But the Spirit overcomes the flesh. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, is the one who brings us to Christ, brings us to faith, and gives us the ability to do that which is pleasing to God. So that's the contrast. And so certainly the liberty that Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians 3.17 is a liberty from the Mosaic Covenant. Now, go forward three verses to verse 9. Notice 2 Corinthians 3.9. Just skip ahead in your Bible. Notice Paul says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Stop there. What was the ministry of condemnation? The Mosaic Covenant. That's what he refers to it as. So he's calling the Mosaic Covenant the ministry of condemnation. He's, if that has glory, he says, Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So if, if there was glory to the Mosaic Covenant. Remember when... The Lord meets Moses on Sinai. There's great glory, so much so that Moses' face would shine. He had to put a veil, in fact, remember, over his face in in Exodus chapter 34. But the new covenant abounds in greater righteousness. So that's Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians 3. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant because what the flesh couldn't do, the Spirit did. So what you and I have to see is that the liberty Paul's talking about is liberty from the Mosaic Covenant. That's what he's referring to. But what I want you to see is when he says we have liberty from the Mosaic Covenant, we've been set free, we have to know as Christians that the law of Moses didn't restrain our sin, it incited it. Our sin nature used and co-opted the law of Moses and it inflamed more sin. Not so says Eric Dauma, but so says the Apostle Paul who speaks the very words of Christ. Turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to see this concept. Let's look at Romans chapter 7, first of all, verses 5 through 9. Again, Romans 7, 5 through 9. And what I'm going to show you in Romans 7 is Paul's going to give a very bleak picture indeed of humanity under the Mosaic law. Why? Because being human beings dead in our trespasses you and I are incited by the Mosaic law to sin all the more. And ultimately, this is what happened to the Israelites. So notice what he says, Romans 7, 5. 
through 9, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law... Stop there. Were they quenched by the law? Were they quelled? Were they restrained by the law? No, this is the Apostle Paul. He said they were aroused by the law. Stop there. Why do we have so many in the reform camp that come from Calvin say, no, the law can be used to restrain the sinful inclinations of new covenant Christians? That's not what the Apostle Paul taught. That's not what the Apostle Paul taught. He says it was aroused by the law, our sin nature. Notice he keeps going. He says they were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Stop there. Notice the new covenant didn't bring life because it brought about faith and righteousness. No, it brought about death. Remember what is death? Separation from God, separation of body and soul, one day separation from God forevermore in the lake of fire. Right? So death is a separation from God. It's spiritual death. It leads to obviously physical death, separation of body and soul. And one day it leads to ultimate death, separation from God forevermore in the lake of fire. But notice in verse 6, he says, but now we have been released. Look at the term released from the law, having died to that which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Stop there, boy. That sounds a lot like what he's just said in 2 Corinthians. And that's because that's exactly what he said. We've been spared from that, set free from it. Verse 7 of Romans 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now stop there. Notice at the end of verse 7, Paul specifically uses thou shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. Let's ask ourselves the question, why would he use that commandment and not another one, like thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal? Let me explain why I think he uses thou shall not covet is because ultimately coveting is where human beings long for something in the creation more than their creator. And some person might say, well, you know, I never murdered my neighbor, I never stole from my neighbor, but no human being could ever say that they never coveted. And so that commandment shuts the mouth of every man. No human being can ever say, yes, I've always been completely content with my creator and I've never longed for anything in the creation more than the creator. No, we're all guilty of that. And that is the root of every single sin. Wanting something in the creation more than the creator, it's the root of idolatry. So that's why he uses covetousness. That's why he uses the pinnacle of all the commandments. And then in verse 8, notice what continues. He says, but sin, very important verse, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Notice, let's stop there in verse 8. Paul's point there is that sin, our sin nature, took opportunity through the law. Bob, you and I were doing radio once, and you gave a great analogy. We're actually in Galatians, but it's the same idea. Bob talked about this idea of taking opportunity. Um, How many in here are aware of the Normandy invasion? Remember at D-Day? You probably have all heard of that. Well, think about the beachhead. The United States military used the beachhead that we gained as a base in which we could launch further operations against the Nazis. That's what Paul is saying sin did with the law. Sin co-opted the law in our sinfulness. The law is not the problem. In fact, Paul will say it's wholly righteous and good. 
Okay, he says that. I think it's in Romans 7, 12. So what's the law? Holy, righteous, and good. The problem is it's like oil and water with our sin nature. It doesn't mix. And so our sin nature co-opted the law like a beachhead so that it could further wage war against God and incur further sin and therefore death and all of the unrighteousness that's accrued to our account. That's Paul's claim. So notice in verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So it's almost as if Paul is saying, look, the sin that was within me, it's always me, it's me, it's me. I'm the problem, not the law. It's you, you're the problem, not the law. It's us. But it lied dormant, and when the law came, it incited it. Tell the three-year-old, He's never seen the cookie jar. He hasn't thought about the cookie jar. He's never wanted the cookie until you say, hey, you see this cookie jar? You can't have the cookie. And all of a sudden, all he does is scheme to try to get the cookie out of the cookie jar. The law did the same thing to us. It incited our sin and rebellious nature, sinful and rebellious nature. Okay, so let's skip ahead. If you have Romans 7, go to verse 11. And this is kind of the coup de grace that I want you to see where it says, for sin... Notice verse 11, Paul says, For sin taking an opportunity, again the term opportunity there, aforme, this beachhead, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Notice it was through the commandment of the Mosaic Covenant. So dear ones, is the Mosaic Covenant ever going to bring you righteousness? No, it's going to incite your sin nature. But the good news, what Paul is laying forward Fourth for us here in 2 Corinthians 3.17 is that we have liberty from that covenant. We've been liberated from the old covenant that incited our sin nature. And therefore, we're also liberated from sin itself. That you and I can really live a life that's pleasing to God. Not that we will live perfect lives. We certainly never will. This side of glory. One day we will and our glorified bodies never sin again. Now, let's keep going here. I'm going to show you another passage where we see this idea of liberty. Galatians 2.4. This is where Paul is rebuking the Judaizers in Galatians. Paul says, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Again, the term liberty, the same term we just saw up in 2 Corinthians 3.17. We have liberty in the New Covenant, but in the church at Galatia, you had people who came in, wanted to bring circumcision back into effect. They wanted to bind, we're going to talk about binding and loosing, the church at Galatia to the rite of circumcision. Now, where was circumcision found, that command? It's found in the Mosaic Law. But we've been liberated from the Mosaic Law, so why go back? Why go back to a law that all it could do at best was incite your sin nature? Do you see what a fool's errand it was? That's Paul's point. And Paul reminds them in Galatians 5.3, hey, if you want that one part of the law, by the way, you're bound to keep the entire thing. All 613 commands. Can you do that? No, can't do that. I could be circumcised once in my life as a man, but I can't keep all 613 laws. And therefore, I'm sunk. And that's why Paul can say, if you want to go back to the law, you're severed from Christ and you've fallen from grace. Meaning you've gone into a completely different system altogether. Brothers and sisters, you and I are no longer under the Mosaic law. 
So when you hear Christians, for example, bring up laws that come from the Old Covenant and they try to bind people to them, how many times do you hear people get into food laws? This has happened to me numerous times in my life. People will try to say, well, I really think we should keep the food laws. Well, weren't we set free from that? Well, certainly we were. So what I'm going to show you then is what is the purpose of the law? We're going to see that the purpose of the Mosaic law was to drive us to Christ. And you're going to see a very interesting argument, I think a greater to lesser argument that's implicit here in Romans 3, 19 through 20. Notice what Paul said here. Very important that all of us get this down. Romans 3, 19 through 20, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Notice the purpose in red, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right, let's start in the beginning here in verse 19. Let's ask the question, who are those who are under the law? Who would be those who are under the law? Does anyone want to take a guess? Everybody not saved? Um, You know, here, that's a good guess, Rich. I think here, um, it's the Jews. It's the Israelites. And further evidence for that is in chapters 2 and 3, Paul shows that all the Gentiles without the law, they're sinners. All the Jews that had the law, they're sinners. But here's the question, and you, you raise an interesting question because... Some people are almost forced into that interpretation. Let me explain why, Rich. Notice it says, so that every mouth may be closed. Well, wait a minute. If only the Jews are under the law, how can it close the mouth of every man? In other words, if only the Jews, the covenant people of God, were bound to the Mosaic law, how does the Mosaic law condemn every man? Well, I think there's an implied, and I don't think it's just implied in places, Paul talks about in Romans 9. Romans 9, there was a superiority of the Jews. They had the patriarchs. They had the covenants. They had the promises. They had the greatest law that had ever been given, the Mosaic law. These are the chosen people. And yet if they couldn't bring about righteousness through the law, how much less could you and I as Gentiles who didn't have the patriarchs, the covenants, the callings, how much less could we bring about righteousness? We're the ones who, after all, are depicted in Ephesians 2 as being far off without hope in the world. So that's how it can... Think of it this way. Adam is our first representative, and he brings us sin, death, and hell. Well, in a sense, Israel is another representative. Why? In fact, remember uh, Moses says in Exodus chapter 4, I believe, remember he says... Before Pharaoh, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. So in a real sense, Israel is a new representative. But through the Mosaic law, they didn't bring about righteousness and perfect living. It brought about sin, death, and hell as well. And so that's how the law of Moses condemns every man. In a sense, Israel, the prototypical nation that represents all the other nations because it is, in fact, given all the blessings of God, if they couldn't bring about righteousness the Gentiles are going to be far less capable. So that's how it condemns us. Now, what's the purpose of the law? Well, notice it says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The whole purpose of the law is to show us that we can't do that which is pleasing to God. We can't earn our way to salvation. Yes, Laverne. Isn't there a verse, and I'm, I'm sorry I don't recall where it is, that says that people that don't have the law will not be accountable to the law. 
In other words, they're conscious and the heavens declare the glory of God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see that in Romans 2, that those who don't have the law, the Gentiles, their conscience still condemns them. So they know what's right, but they still don't do that which is right. So then it's that sort of contradicts that the law is the one that shuts every mouth of every man. Yeah, but nonetheless, Paul, the apostle who speaks for Christ, says it. And so let me unpack it for you. I think the idea is that our conscience, as good as it is, can still be deceived. In fact, later in the book of Romans, I would lay out that Paul is arguing that conscience has to be illuminated by something outside of itself. Uh, for example, remember in First and Second Timothy, Paul talks about those who have a seared conscience. Why is the false teacher's conscience seared? Well, because it's not being informed by the scriptures. It's being informed by some other outside source. So the conscience always has to be informed by something. So as good as the conscience is, it's still not perfect. And Paul never argues that the conscience is something that's infallible. In fact, we see in case of the false teachers, the conscience can be seared, it can be distorted. So what I would argue is that far greater than the conscience is the direct revelation, divine revelation that God gave to Moses at Sinai. So if anyone had a wayward conscience, that would surely correct it. The problem is even the great law of Moses that was divine revelation from God didn't bring about righteousness through our sin nature. Not the law's problem. Remember Romans seven twelve. it's holy, righteous, and good. It's our sin nature's the problem. Okay, does that make sense? So even though the conscience has value, it's not perfect. The law of Moses was perfect in, that, in the fact that it was divine revelation. And so that's why Paul appeals to that. Does that make sense, Laverne? Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering why that verse says that. Yeah. You're I think not... that that's the order. So Paul sees it as a guide, but a, a fallible guide. A guide that's a, a guide that is malleable, that's morphing, that has to be properly informed. So when our minds are informed by the scriptures, we have a conscience that's reliable, more reliable. If you don't have a conscience informed by scripture, you have a seared conscience. So very good. I'll make this real yes, quick. Yes, Bob. I think the summary is every form of revelation God ever made, general revelation, the conscience, anything uh, man has sinned against. Amen. And therefore we need a savior. Amen. That is so well said. Yeah, every form of revelation that he's given, whether it's general or whether it's divine. Yep, we distorted it. Yep. And so what was needed was the power of the Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah, Peter. So basically the law then demonstrates our inability. Right? Exactly. Well said. Inability. And then to piggyback off of what Laverne said, a couple of things. Um, I think Romans 2 goes a step further and says uh, those that don't acknowledge or accept the law become the law unto themselves. In other words, they're establishing themselves as a lawgiver. If I'm not mistaken, it's somewhere in Romans 2, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that's right. And to carry it a step further, so a little close to home, but um, I have a sibling who doesn't believe, okay? And I told him that that wasn't true. I I said, I, I cited an example and I remember when <clears throat> we were we were going to go we were going to go play tennis at a tennis court. Yeah. And there were some young kids playing, and there were other adults 
there waiting. And the adults just decided to terminate their match and take the court. Oh. <clears throat> My brother saw this. He witnessed this. You have real love for your brother. It shows, Peter. That's beautiful. Well, he, inter he intervened. Excuse yeah. He, he intervened. And I said to him, I cited this example because it stuck with me. Yeah. And I said, well, if you don't believe, then why did you ever intervene? Right. Where did that come from? Right. Where did that sense of justice come from? Amen. And so I kind of called him <laughs> out on it, but just yeah. make him aware that the conscience is alive. That's right. Thanks. Well said, yeah. So the conscience is something that God gives us, but again, Paul never sees it as an infallible source. You can have a seared conscience. Uh, remember in Romans 12, 2, we're to be not conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So when we're renewed in our mind and understanding the scriptures, our conscience becomes informed, and therefore you and I do that which is pleasing to God. Think about in Romans 14, the weaker Christian's conscience is not informed as it should be about regarding the scriptures, and therefore they feel condemned when they eat certain foods, even though in Mark 7, 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. So the supreme lawgiver forevermore says all foods are clean, but this Christian says I can't eat that food. Why? Because their conscience is telling them that they're sinning when they're doing it. It's not properly informed by Scripture. So conscience is never an infallible guide, although it is a guide. And your brother there was reflecting, and what you were pointing out is that there was an ethos within him that came from the Creator that knew that there was right and wrong, and yet without a Creator there can't be right and wrong. It's just mere opinion. So, well said. It's a very good way of witnessing. So, thank you for your love for your brother. We'll, um, we'll, we'll keep praying for him. So, um, I'm sorry, someone else had a comment? Okay, we'll just keep going on. So, what I want you to see here is, okay, what's, we're free from the law. The law shuts the mouth of every man because Israel, who is greater than all, couldn't obey it. What's the purpose of the law? To reveal our knowledge of sin to give us that, to say you can't do it. You, you, as Peter very succinctly summarized, we have inability. That's a great way of summarizing it. We have complete inability. Okay, so what we see in Romans 7 is that everyone who's in the flesh, that is, they don't have the Spirit, cannot do anything pleasing to God. You get to Romans 8, you have a great conclusion. Verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, it says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. That's the verbal form of that liberty that we saw earlier, has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Notice the two different covenants. In blue, you have the new covenant given by the Holy Spirit. Now, why does he talk about the law of the spirit of life? Well, the term law there is used in a metaphorical way by Paul as a principle or a force. Now, how do we know that? Well, because there isn't a law of sin. Does anyone see the Ten Commandments of sin? You know, thou must sin in this way. No, it's a principle or a force that's at work in our flesh. Now, let me prove that to you so you don't just take my word for it. Turn your Bibles to Romans 7.25. Turn your Bibles to Romans 7.25. I just want to prove it's really important in this text to see that law means principle or force 
not a specific codified law like the law of Moses or, you know, the law of the Constitution or whatever law that may be codified, but it's a principle or force. Notice Romans 7.25, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then he says, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Does everyone see that phrase, the law of sin? What he's talking about is it's like a force. It's like a principle that keeps driving me to sin and I can't break myself free while I'm in bondage. So the good news is now in Romans 8, we've been set free from that bondage. So we were set free. We have liberty. We were set free by the Holy Spirit from the law of sin and death. What was the law of sin and death? It's the principle of sin at work in our lives. But remember, it co-opted and it used the Mosaic law. That was used by Paul, that argument earlier in Romans 7. So, dear ones, we've been set free from our sin nature when you and I were given the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that we're completely set free in the sense we will never sin? No. Think of it this way, this analogy. Before the fall, we could sin or not sin. After the fall, I'm sorry, I'm giving... (laughs) No, that's all right. Thanks for playing, Rich. That's very good. No, very good. Number one, so... Before the fall, we could either we had the ability to either sin or not sin. After the fall, we had the ability only to sin. After conversion, given the Spirit, we, can, we have the ability to sin or not sin. After glorification, we have the ability to never sin. So where are we in those four stages? Well, we're after conversion. Okay, so we can have the ability to sin... And we have the ability to not sin. That is not true of the unregenerate under any human law, including the Mosaic law, which is God's law. They only have the ability to sin before conversion. That's it. They're dead. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you and I have been set free. Now, let me show you another passage. Now, what I want to drive here is that you and I are no longer under the Mosaic law. We really aren't, and we have to get our minds wrapped around that. This is why Paul says in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice the term end there, telos. Telos can mean termination or it can mean design. Um, How many in here have ever heard of the teleological argument that has the root of telos? The idea is because there's design inherent in the creation, there must be a designer. That's the teleological argument because... The creation shows that there's a design. Well, telos can mean that, that Christ is the design of the law. It was the goal to which the law was pointing. And that certainly is true. But Paul's major emphasis here is that it is the termination. Because once the goal of the law, Christ, has come on the scene, you don't go back. There's a new sheriff in town. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're under him. That's the idea. So there's no going back. Brothers and sisters, how many times... Have I seen in my ministry, I know Bob has, where people will try to bind you back to the Mosaic Law. Some years ago, there was a faction in our own church. They ended up leaving our church. But they said, hey, we were, as believers in Christ, certainly justified by Christ. But if we really want to be sanctified, these pastors aren't doing us a favor because they're not bringing us back to the Law of Moses. Well, Bob and I, uh, Bob had a great uh, saying about this. In fact, we have shirts. Yeah, we, have t-shirts. <laughs> we have T-shirts that say, we'll bring them in sometimes. Sometime we'll preach in those shirts, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess that'd be an outdoor preaching. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> no. So the shirt says, I was not justified by Jesus. And it sounds, oh my gosh, this is kind of heretical, right? I was not justified by Jesus. But when you turn around, it says, in order to be sanctified by Moses. Whew. Right? But isn't that true? I was not justified by Jesus in order to be sanctified by Moses. What did the Mosaic Law do? Did it incite good things in us? No, we learned it incited sin and death. There's no going back. We've been liberated. Yes, Peter. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll get you one. So, so like Bob taught on one of his past uh, uh, sermons, you're going from uh, Sabbath keeping to Sabbath rest. Is yes. That, is that correct? Yes, Hebrews 4. Where's our Sabbath rest found? It's not found in keeping a certain day. It's trusting in Christ and you enter into messianic rest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if anyone wants a succinct passage that shows the termination of the Old Covenant, it's certainly here in Romans 10.4. But let me cite another one you can jot down. Hebrews 8.13. Let me read to you Hebrews 8.13. Hebrews 8.13 says this. It says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's the Mosaic covenant. He says, But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. What is the old covenant? It's obsolete. So should we go back to that which is obsolete? No. We're to continue on in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, we have freedom from the old covenant. What that means is we don't have to keep all the 613 laws that were laid out for the Jews. Jesus comes on the scene of history, Matthew 11. He's the new lawgiver. And he says, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's where Sabbath rest comes. And he says, my, what, yoke is easy and my burden is light. The new covenant burden is far less than that which we had under the old covenant. Yes? A uh, question, and I'm not sure if I get this so it makes sense. Um, I see all the value, and I'm appreciating what I'm learning, but then I feel that struggle with, isn't there still value then in teaching young children the Ten Commandments and learning the principles? Because I feel like it's almost being tossed away. Yes, very good, and we'll come to that. Um, it's always going to function as Scripture for the people of God. So what I'll do is I'll show three things that the New Testament writers did. In fact, I think it's the next slide. And what's interesting about that is, remember in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul himself could say, Hey, Timothy, from your youth you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He was talking about the Old Testament. So what we have to make a distinction is between the Mosaic Law as a binding legal code and the Mosaic Law as revealed scripture. So I can read the Mosaic Law and get much profit out of it if I'm looking at it as scripture but not a binding legal code. If I start thinking, hey, we better get cities of refuge built up here in the United States and we better stop, stop eating pork and shellfish and we better go kosher and we better start observing... All of a sudden I'm taking the Old Testament and I'm twisting it so I'm binding us back to the legal code element. Are you with me? Yep. So think of the term Torah can mean law. But it can also mean, most properly for the Jew, it's the first five books of Moses. And isn't it interesting, it's there in those first five books in Genesis 15, 6, that we see Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. So we learn, yes, salvation's by faith. In fact, that's what Paul builds off of in Romans chapter 4. 
So, yes, Old Testament is scripture, but not the binding legal code. Yeah, very good question. Okay, in fact, I think we're going to come to that. We're going to see, oh, no, it'll be in the next slide, but we'll come to it here. Oh, no, it is this slide. Sorry. can't remember my own slides. The new covenant replaces the old. There's three things that the New Testament writers did with the Old Testament. The first thing they did is they repudiated the law of Moses as a binding legal code, just what Linda had asked. Great segue. The check's in the mail, Linda. They abrogated They got rid of it. It's no longer a binding legal code upon us. Okay? But they didn't just leave us with that. They also replaced the law of Moses with the law of Christ. So here's something that Jesus ran into, and it's also something that Paul ran into, that is that they were antinomian, that is against the law, that they were lawless. That was one of the accusations especially made against the Apostle Paul. That is also made against us who want to live under the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully. You and I are not lawless. We've simply gone from one lawgiver, Moses, to the new and eternal lawgiver, Christ. Now, proof of that is found. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21. So if anyone argues with you and says, I don't believe that, I think we're still bound to the Mosaic Covenant. Otherwise, we're going to be lawless. Well, that's not how Paul understood it. Paul, the apostle who speaks the very words of Christ. Now, remember in 1 Corinthians, we'll start in chapter 9, verse 19. This is where Paul talks about becoming all things to all people so that by all possible means some may be saved. His point is he limited all potential obstacles, those things that offend, except the gospel. That was his idea. But he wouldn't let, get rid of the gospel that offends. That's what he hung on, hung on to. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Notice verse 21. By the way, the law he's talking about here is the law of Moses. Verse 21, he says, To those who are without law, so this would be the Gentiles now, as without law, he became one who was like without the law. But notice he says, Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That is a critical passage for you to have in your mind to understand true Christian liberty in binding and loosing. The Apostle Paul and every New Covenant Christian is not lawless apart from the law of God. We've gone from one lawgiver, the law of Moses, to the new lawgiver, the law of Christ. Didn't the, Moses himself predict that that would occur? He did in Deuteronomy 18.15. He predicted that one day God would raise up a prophet like him from amongst the countrymen. And if we wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of us. In the book of Matthew, we're going to come to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are bearing witness to Christ at his transfiguration. But Peter wants to make a booth for all three, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Christ. But all of a sudden, they go away, and there's Christ alone. And all of a sudden, the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That is quoting, inciting, and alluding to Deuteronomy 18.15. So we have confirmation from the Heavenly Father that indeed Jesus is the final prophet we are to look forward to. So not just a prophet, 
Remember, Moses is certainly a prophet, a prophet par excellence of the Old Covenant, but he was also a mediator of the Old Covenant. Christ is not only the prophet par excellence, he's the mediator of the eternal, that is the New Covenant. That's how we are to view him. Okay, so the law of Moses was replaced by the New Covenant and was also reappropriated. The law of Moses is used by New Testament writers for application. As Linda pointed out in her question, it will always remain the Scriptures. It will always remain the very words of God. It's also reapplied many times in the New Testament. For example, notice the Matthew 18, 16. Remember, that talks about no sin uh, um, accusation will be brought against a person without two or three witnesses. That's going back to Deuteronomy 19, 15. Okay, so Deuteronomy 19.15 is being applied under the new covenant. Think about 1 Timothy 5.18. This is where it says that you shall not muzzle the ox as treading out the grain. It talks about the, the elder who's worthy of his pay because they're preaching and teaching. Well, that passage goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, citing that, yes, you can't take the food away from the ox who's feeding the people. So if you can't take, there's a lesser argument, if you can't take the food away from the ox that's feeding the people, you can't take food away from the pastor who's feeding the people. That's the argument. So it's being reapplied. But again, it'll always function as scripture. So do you see the three R's? They repudiated it, no longer a binding covenant, a legal code, replaced it with the law of Christ, were not lawless, and reappropriated as scripture for the people of God. Those are the three moves that the New Testament writers did with the Old Covenant. Okay, now, what about laws that God never gave? Think of it this way. If you and I are bound to the greatest law that God actually gave, are we bound then to some lawgiver who comes on the scene who says, by the way, I don't think you should watch football on Sunday. That's one of my favorite examples. Um, Some years ago, we had a man who said that women couldn't pass out the elements for the Lord's Supper. I'm just giving you real-life scenarios from my own ministry, and Bob has seen this as well. So let's ask ourselves the question, where under the new covenant does it say that women cannot hand out the elements for the Lord's table? Does anyone want to cite that verse? No, I don't think we're bound by that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the book of Hezekiah, which is, right, very good, <laughs> which doesn't exist. Right, very good. So my point is this is very... Um, I'm sorry, Norm, did you have something? Oh, good. Yeah, when you turn to uh, Matthew 5 there, in Matthew 5, 17, it says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Amen. And then he goes on and lists several of them that are reappropriated, some more binding than they were in the old yes. and some less. So, Absolutely. A very astute, Norman. So he's showing us, he's going up on the mount. He's the lawgiver that, remember, Moses went up on a mount, right? The old lawgiver. So Jesus goes up on the mount and he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Why is he able to say, but I say to you? Because he's the Lord. And so he's giving us now um, something that's binding. So you're right. In some sense, the new covenant is more difficult now you're an adulteress or adulterer if you, in fact, look at another person with lust. Um, if you merely say, Raka, you fool, you're guilty of the judgment and considered a murderer at heart. And so one thing that we see when we come away from that is 
number one, I can't do that. I need a Savior who did this for me because he's showing us the true intent of the law. He's giving us this new law that I can't live up to. But the other thing that we come away with is that by the power of the Spirit, I'll start living this out. I'll start loving my neighbor and even my enemies. I won't be the one who retaliates and I'll be the one who shows mercy. And we'll start being that people by his grace and his power, not by our own. So, but well said, absolutely. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fill to the full the law. Yeah, he was what it was pointing to. Yes. Uh, Eric. Yeah, and actually kind of related to that, I, I just think of Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, And the, the big overview for me, and I took a, a little online thing by a guy, a, a person by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Oh, yes. Yep. And uh, he taught about the covenants. It's just important to understand the covenants of God yeah. and that there are eternal covenants, yes. which God fulfills all of it. In other words, we don't have to, all we have to do is say we're, we're in it. Yeah. And, and then there are uh, conditional covenants, which require both God and man to keep their end of the bargain, so to speak. And the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant in which God made promises, but he also said you've got to keep your end of the covenant. And so in Jeremiah 31, 31, this is another concept of of biblical prophecy where there's near-term fulfillment and long-term fulfillment, as I understand it. So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Okay, and that's that's the covenant in Jesus Christ. And it says that uh, he'll put his law in their hearts. Now, that won't happen fully. We know that most of the house of Israel is not uh, they're not in the new covenant, That's but right. we are grafted in. Amen. So we have a near-term fulfillment where, where uh, the Mosaic covenant is ended because the Jewish people couldn't keep it. That's this whole text in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through about uh, 34. 34. And you, you guys, a lot of people are familiar with it. Absolutely. Uh, and so that's what we're in now. We're in this new covenant. We're in the near-term fulfillment of it, those of us who have, who have entered into that covenant just simply by receiving, receiving Jesus Christ. That's Absolutely. how we enter. Well said. So there, there are unconditional covenants and conditional ones. Think about the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. Um, Abraham believes God has credit, credited to him his righteousness. He then asked God, interestingly enough, after he's already justified he says, how do I know I'll receive it? And we would say, well, that seems like a lack of faith. <laughs> well, then what does God have him do? He has him take the animals, cut them. But who alone walks the bloodline, the blood path? He does. And Abraham's asleep. And so God cut the covenant, Karath Barith. He cut the covenant with Abraham that day. You're right, unilaterally. So Jesus, some 1,800 years later, is ratifying that covenant. And so the Abrahamic and the new covenant are in some sense together. You're justified by faith alone. Abraham looked forward to the cross. You and I look back to the cross. But it's one plan of salvation, one faith, one Savior. Um, The one thing I just want to mention, just a slight, um, it's very astute what you said. The near and the far, the way I would see Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is more of a direct prophecy. um, Because the near and the far, I know what you're saying. You're saying the near is in um, our day, as it were, and the far is going to be when the Jews are resettled. But remember to, to the biblical writers, all of that's still placed in the last days. So technically the near and the far would be in the old covenant, the near term in the, the, in the prophet's day. So there would have to be a fulfillment in Jeremiah's day. 
And then there's a fulfillment in the future uh, last days or the day of the Lord. So what I would see it as is the it would be a direct prophecy, not a near and a far, because there was no time in Israel's uh, present day of Jeremiah's day in which they were given the new covenant. Does that make sense? So I would just say in my, um, yeah, so in my category of direct prophecy or typological, or I would put it in the direct. Direct prophecy, one day there's going to be a new covenant. Bingo, Christ comes on the scene, new covenant. That's how I would see it. But you're right in the sense that there's an unfolding of that through the last days. So, right, well said. Very good. Well, let's see. Let's read about Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7. And we're going to see some laws that were put upon Jesus' disciples that God had never commanded at all. They were never even revealed in the Old Covenant. Listen to what it says. Mark 7, 5 through 7 it says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands. Now stop there. Notice the reference to the tradition of the elders. Are the disciples of Christ going to be bound by the tradition of the elders? Well, no, if it's not scriptural, they're not going to be bound to that. Now here's the question. Where in the law were people bound to wash their hands prior to eating? They weren't. There were purification principles of washing for the priest, but there wasn't for the common man prior to eating. So the point is, this is a man-made scruple that Jesus' disciples aren't bound by under the Old Covenant, and Jesus is going to point that out. Notice verse 6, And he said to them, this is Jesus' response, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. (laughs) Stop there. That's not the seeker-sensitive version. He's calling them hypocrites right away. Right? He says, As it is written, now here he's going to cite from Isaiah 29, 13, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What's interesting is he's indicting their Isaiah initially, now Jesus, the people of God for worshiping God in a rote in vain way that's not from the heart, but through mere rules and regulations. But what's interesting is notice the coup de grace in the argument is that for Jesus, they were teaching the doctrines and the precepts of men. They came from men, but they didn't come from God. Are you with me? So where did God say, what passage could someone point to that says, you must wash your hands prior to eating? There never was one even under the old covenant. So Jesus says, you're teaching the precepts of men. In fact, I couldn't fit it all on the screen. Look at the very next verse, verse 8. He says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And there Jesus is doing something very important that we should do is to say, listen, I'm not bound by your tradition. And ironically, you who hold to that tradition, you're violating the very commands of God. I'm bound by the commands of God, not by the traditions of men. Some years ago, we had someone again who was saying that women couldn't pass out elements of the Lord's Supper. And we said, show us under the new covenant where that is in fact stated. And if it is not, we will not listen to you. And we didn't listen to them. Why? Because we're not bound by the traditions of a man or a woman, but by the terms of Christ. If Here's the catch here, brothers and sisters. When someone says, I don't watch TV after noon on Sunday, uh, before noon it's fine, (laughs) but I mean, I don't watch football on Sunday... You see, they sound more pious, do they not? Wow, that's a holy roller. They won't even watch football on Sunday. 
But in reality, what they're really doing is they're substituting themselves as the lawgiver rather than Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, you have freedom to not watch football if you don't want to watch football. But if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, you shall not watch football, the question is, where are we bound to that? Yes, Bob. Well, just a quick little illustration. We were yeah. in a pietist group because yeah. I had learned my lesson back in the 70s. And there was Monday night footballs and everything. Yeah. And somebody saw me watching one time and said, that's a sin. Oh. <laughs> I think that's a sin. And I, and I knew this person liked to knit. Yeah. And I said, well, I think knitting is a sin. Oh. <laughs> but that was trying to lighten the moment. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. Sin is always something I don't like to do anyhow. Right, right, right. Rich pointed out it is a sin to watch the Vikings because they are the abomination that causes desolation, right? Am I de- <laughs> I'm with you. I'm, no, I'm just, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I love her. Yeah. Just on the hand washing, yeah. the scribes and Pharisees were so meticulous about that that they said that you needed to take a one and a half eggshells of water, hold your hands together like this, let the water run down from the hands to the elbow, and then reverse. Wow. And that's what they were talking about. That is meticulous, is it not? Yes. And so what they did is their Talmud building, the law never even stated it, but they start coming up with the requirements that the law never gave. And what's interesting is later in Mark 7, Jesus explains where real sin comes from. It's not external or outward, but rather it's from the heart. And never forget, in fact, I'll just cite the verse... It's Matthew 7, 21. It's from the heart. That's where the sin comes from. But never forget that the heart is not just our emotions. As if, well, we got to divorce our intellect. The heart for the Hebrew was the center of your thought life. It was the intersection where you had your intellect, where you had your emotions, yes, but also your will. All three of those for the Jew was part of the heart. Okay? So what Jesus is saying is it comes from your thought life. That's where true sin comes from. So it's not the external having an egg. Uh, uh, what was it, half an egg or full egg? One and a half. One and a half. I'm sorry, way off. One, one and a half eggs full of water. It's not, it doesn't come from that. It comes from having a heart, a mind that's obstinate and won't believe. So again, brothers and sisters, if we weren't bound to the Mosaic law, if we're no longer bound to the greatest law that God had given up until the time of the law of Christ, how much less are we bound to the laws that the legalist gives. It's something to think about because the trappings for many evangelicals is they see the legalist as the one who's really pious. While they don't do this or they don't do that, the question to ask yourself is, is that something that I'm bound to under the new covenant? And if it's not stated in the new covenant, it's a man-made tradition. It's not something that comes from God. I'm sorry, Nancy. I just had a quick question because you were apparently really optimistic to think you were going to get through 12 slides. Yeah. <laughs> Are, is this something that you'll carry on next yes. week? Yes. Um, and we'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. We'll come back to it. Absolutely. Yep. Tom. But Fauci says <laughs> we should wash, separate, mask, and vax. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Right. Thus saith Fauci. Right. 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 Yeah, I know. I know. Um, by the way, what's interesting about that comment, Tom, is you do bring up um, what about the civil authorities? And we are bound to the civil authorities unless what? They command us to do something God forbids or they forbid us from doing something God commands. The one thing that I would state also is that just as Paul 
remember he went to his Roman citizenship and he said, you can't do what you're doing. He cited the civil authorities so that he'd be brought before Felix. Do you remember that in the book of Acts? Well, in the same way, we're also bound by the authority in the land. We have a law in the land. So one of the arguments that I've often thought of is where it says in Romans 13, 1, we are to be subject to the governing authorities, right? The term exousia, the term for authority, can be applied to the Constitution. That is the highest authority. So as Paul appealed to his law, we can appeal to ours. And that's something I do not under divine revelation. I would just say this is a general revelation issue. We can say, can you show me under the law where, in fact, I'm bound to do such and such? Again, so again, I'm not doing this as a citizen of the kingdom, but as a citizen of the United States, I would say we can do binding and loosing under the Constitution. Do you see what I'm getting at? So what I'm saying is something that you're learning in theology in some sense can be applied to the other world that we live in. We can do binding and loosing there and say, hey, where am I bound to do such and such? I I would appeal to that because the Apostle Paul did when he appealed to the law of the Romans himself. So um, with that, let me just turn to another slide talking about binding and loosing. And I'm going to set this up and I'll leave it here. But I want to show what binding and loosing is not and then what it is. Misunderstood by many to mean, this is binding and loosing. Many people, what they mean by it is that believers have the power and authority in Jesus' name to manipulate the demonic powers. Okay, that's what they think binding and loosing are. So years ago, I remember there was a prayer walk around the Twin Cities, and I remember hearing on the radio they were going to bind Satan. Okay, what I'm going to show you is we have no authority to bind Satan and the demons. Who alone has the authority to do that? The Lord. The Lord does. So part of our Christian worldview, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, is that God is the head of his divine counsel, both the good angels and the bad. And he alone in his divine counsel meeting gets to decide what his angelic realm does. Are you with me? And we'll prove that. So what is binding and loosing? And this is what we'll lay out next time. Properly understood, binding and loosing are moral terms used regarding a person's moral obligations before God. Under the new covenant, if I am bound, that means Jesus Christ or his apostles, the New Testament writers, have spoken authoritatively and said, thou shall not do this or thou must do that, and therefore I'm morally bound to it. But where they have not spoken, where something is not stated, I have to do or not do, I'm free. So one of the ways I wanted, one of the reasons I want to talk about this just very briefly is there's been some um, going at one another about vaccines. And the one issue I want us to think about is that, um, again, I'm not talking about general revelation, I'm talking about divine revelation. Under the new covenant, are we bound to not get a vaccine or to get a vaccine? No, the scripture is silent. And therefore, that has to be an arena of Christian liberty. Whether one Christian gets a vaccine or another Christian doesn't get one, that's an area of Christian liberty. Okay, otherwise, we're going to be the new lawgiver, just like the one who says, hey, I don't think you should watch football on Sunday or I don't think women should hand out the elements. We've run into that. We can't go back to that regarding vaccines. Vaccines have to be an area of Christian liberty. That's the divine side of revelation. If I don't have a word from God, I can't say to someone, thou shall not get a vaccine or thou shall get a vaccine. Okay? Now, get away from the divine side of revelation. Everyone can argue whether it's good or bad to get a vaccine using general revelation. I can do the same thing as an airline pilot. It's good to use 30 degrees of flaps. It's good to use 10 degrees of flaps. But what I can't do 
is say, thus saith the Lord. In my Saab 340, thou shalt use 10 degrees of flaps on final. Are you with me? <laughs> All right? I'm not sinning if I use 10 degrees. I'm not um, Bob and I knew some fellow years ago. He said it's, um, I don't mean to be crass, but he said it's not a sin to be stupid. We can even make bad decisions at times, but because we're not bound under the new covenant, it's not sin. And my point in saying that isn't that it's dumb one way or the other with the vaccine. My point is there's sometimes we'll see people doing dumb things and we almost want to treat it as if it's sin. But no, there's times when we can look at general revelation and say, hey, you know, that's not a good idea. Not because the Lord has a word in it, but because I think you'll go off the cliff or you're, you're not going to land the aircraft safely or what have you. But again, that's not something we bind each other here at the church. We're bound by God's divine revelation. And again, we have to give each other liberty where there's nothing that's been specifically stated by the Lord. So that's why I wanted to close on. But was there, I thought I saw another hand raised. Um, maybe not. Okay. Well, well, you know what? Next time we're in this, we'll finish this up. We'll begin with um, why can't we bind Satan? What's wrong with doing that? And we'll take a look at that through the book of Jude. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the liberty that we have in Christ under the new covenant that we're no longer bound to a law that we couldn't obey through the weakness of our flesh, but that through sending your spirit, you brought us to faith in Christ, your son. We have forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, and the ability to do that which is pleasing to you. I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters that we would have these concepts in our minds and our hearts so that we would not falsely bind one another. They would not, we would not usurp you as the ultimate lawgiver, the lawgiver of the church, that we would give grace to one another in areas of liberty, and that we would encourage one another in the doctrines of the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.